Carson, and this is The Balance, understanding nonprofit finance. In today's episode, Liz Ackles and Marty Fisher join me to talk about how to responsibly scale a small nonprofit organization. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of The Balance. My first guest is Liz Ackles, Executive Director of Community Food Advocates. Liz, welcome. Thank you, Amy. Liz, please tell us a little bit about you and Community Food Advocates. Sure. We are a high-impact public policy change organization that focuses on food and income inequities, and we do that through coalition building and organizing. And you've had some pretty substantial achievements over the course of the past few years. Can you please walk us through a few of those? Yeah. So some of the substantial impact, we, we have focused heavily um, on the school meals program. When I first started at Community Food Advocates, um, our founders had been fighting for universal free school meals in New York City public schools for 30 years. And when I joined, I brought experience doing coalition building and policy advocacy. And it took us four hard years, but we built this amazing coalition of public school parents, school-based unions, including teachers, cafeteria workers, principals, pediatricians, every, everything, every everyone you could think of, students, of course, and basically pressed the city to adopt universal free school meals. And we got that accomplished in 2017. The school meals program for decades essentially and, and still does in most places, divide children by income, free, reduced, and paid categories. So what that does is literally divides kids. And that's been an issue that has basically plagued the program from the beginning. It always means that there's a division and those that are just above are upset about the people who are below and people are, are always trying to differentiate themselves. And that's impacted participation. 75% of New York City public school student households for a household of three earn less than $33,000 a year. So it's not hard to put together that given the cost of living in New York City, for many children, this is the food that they rely on on a daily basis. We want everyone of all income levels to feel welcome because that's, that's the key thing. It should be a joyful, central welcoming part of the school day that's prioritized because kids not eating is just a problem. So we think this needs to be elevated and we're working towards that vision. The normal school year, we saw in the first year at 26,000 additional kids eating each day, and that comes to about four, four and a half million meals. So, and we know there's more to build on that. Got it. You became the executive director in 2013. And that's actually the time that we started working together. Can you take us back to that time? You were a new executive director. Your annual operating budget was somewhere around $200,000. You had one or two funders, no infrastructure. Take us through what that experience was like. Sure. So basically, I was hired the, as the executive director. It was me and the, the founders. And we, at that point, had one, one grant for $150,000. There was no infrastructure financially. And, you know, it was just like figuring it all out. And I, I knew pretty immediately we needed to make sure we had some financial structures put in place. I didn't even, didn't know what they were. I didn't know what they would look like, but I knew 
you can't run an or a 501c3 and not have financial structures in place because that will catch up to you pretty quickly both in terms of tracking money and and reporting on it you know but also legally there are legal obligations when you're a nonprofit to make sure you're tracking money and recording it and reporting it to make sure it's all on the up and up and that incomes brand k brand k has been you know instrumental in helping us manage that figure it out make adjustments as we need to because that that's really important thank you so actually this is a great opportunity for me to introduce our next guest I'd like to welcome Marty Fisher to the show Marty is an executive coach and she wears multiple hats but Marty I think I'll let you introduce yourself thank you thank you fascinating just hearing the the history of DFA I'm Marty Fisher. As Amy mentioned, I am an executive coach. I also work with teams and I work with individuals to improve their communication, improve their careers, and create the trust and connectivity that organizations need to survive and thrive, in, especially in this highly competitive and highly volatile time in which we are living. Thank you, Marty. And Marty, I'm sure you've seen this type of situation before, what Liz is describing. Can you help us understand some comparable issues that you've worked through or any thoughts that you have around Liz's prior predicament? Well, it it all really comes down to one word and that word is scale. Because Liz inherited an organization that was a terrific idea and it was based, in fact, it was based in a lot of experience, but it was brand new. And so in order to really bring this idea to fruition, in order to not only deliver on the mission, which is an amazing mission of advocacy and policy, not only to deliver on that, but you also, in order to do that, you can't be a band of one. And Liz was essentially a band of one and the board and the founders who were helping her out. So you've got to both attract talent and you have to attract support. So the ability to use money, because talking about money, you know, a lot of people in development, it, that's, that's their livelihood, but a lot of organizations don't like to talk about money. So what we talk about when we're thinking about scale is we don't talk about the money, we talk about the impact and what that can do, what having a robust financial plan, what having a, a long range plan that is aspirational do to attract both funders who are interested in being part of the solution and talent who wants to come and work and advocate on behalf of the organization and what it can accomplish. That's great. And I should mention that CFA now has an annual operating budget of around $1 million. Yeah, just just under about, we're now at about 750 or so. So you've really grown this from a startup organization over the past few years to a much more stable nonprofit. You know, I I will say we've been very deliberate about our growth. We're not looking to boom and and expand. We've been very deliberate. And and it's been challenging. You know, uh, most of our funding to date is foundation money. A lot of that is year year to year foundation money. And that is a very big, big challenge. So back to Marty's point about scale, what are the top three investments that you made? 
I would say that the, the biggest investments that we've had is I'm also working with an executive coach and that coach was like, you need a leadership team. You can't be at all. You have to make sure. I was like, oh, right. <laughs> and so we've figured out ways to make sure over time that we are offering competitive salaries and benefits. I mean, we're very small. There are only four of us full-time, one of us part-time developing a team that can lead and generate and not just carry things out, but really take things and run has been primary. And that's a really big driving force in the development of the organization. And one of the ways we've also, we have long-term relationships with very excellent consultants. Brand K being the first and a prime example, what they bring is a level of expertise that is affordable for us. I mean, I mean, just like it's, we can't hire, nor should we be hiring a full-time CFO. We're a four person, five, you know, four and a half person organization. Yes. And you know, through the years, Liz, you know, full disclosure, Liz was one of Brand K's very first clients. And through the years, we've effectively kind of grown up together, for lack of a better phrase. <laughs> and so I very much can appreciate and can commiserate with this concept of we need to spend money, but how do we choose wise investments? How are those investments properly identified and prioritized? And I think this is a very common problem around startup organizations, whether they're small businesses or nonprofits. Marty, what do you think? Ooh, ooh pick me on this one. I want to answer this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm really glad you brought that up because, you know, Liz phrased it very interestingly. She said, we only have four full-time people and one part-time person. And to me, that is an enormous opportunity. The last thing you want to do is be facing these questions when you have a team of 20 or 50 or 100 or 150, right? So this is your time. This is the opportunity for organizations like yours and ones that are in any sort of a growth phase to sit and pause and think about, okay, number one, what is the most expensive thing our organization can do, right? The most expensive thing you can do is lose talent, right? So if you've got four full-time and one part-time person, the priority from where I sit would be keep that talent. Keep that talent, grow that talent. Your executive coach, in my opinion, was spot on. Get yourself a leadership team, create ownership positions, right? But in terms of investments, which is what we're talking about here, where can they learn? Where are the educational investments that are going to keep them motivated and keep yep. them engaged in the work? They're going to be mission-focused engaged, but this is the kind of area where you're always learning. There's always more. So yes. what can structurally, operationally, CFA provide to keep those four people on the cutting edge and to really leverage those consultants that you have that aren't your fringe benefit lines that you know, you're just paying, but are you leveraging their expertise enough, right? Is there another way that you can think of to bring them in? If that's a lunch and learn? I will say that one of the things that we've done that's been very interesting in terms of our um, capacity building and professional development is we, since the pandemic, we have twice a week team meetings. Um, one is just like a check-in round. The other is an organizational planning meeting. And it's been fabulous. I have to say, it's uh, this is one of those 
weird pandemic moments where it's pulled us all tighter together, which is, is really great. We have a consultant that's a grant writer and also has been with us for many years, Wei, Wei Lam. And Wei has been joining those meetings. And what that has done is taken the fundraising capacity and knowledge and spread it not just between me and Wei, but among the team, because what was happening was I was the conduit. Now, I, I need to help set the direction and all that kind of stuff, but I was the conduit for information. So what was in my mind at that moment and my priority at that moment or what jumped out at me at that moment was what was conveyed. And there's so much more. And it's so it's been absolutely wonderful because the team is fully enmeshed in the fundraising work and our consultant is learning like just is in a sense part of the team and kind of getting all of that information firsthand and not filtered through me. So it's kind of very great neutral learning experience and really capacity building in ways that are tremendous. I think that's amazing because uh, it's one of those areas that if you don't socialize fundraising early on, it, it sort of tends to get siloed very quickly. Yes. And I, I think this is an area where, I mean, it gives your, your, the rest of your team such latitude to basically sit in the room with the grant writer and create wish lists, you know, like if then scenarios, if we had this, then we could do that. Can you find something that could help us do that? And, and it's such a powerful thing because then, raising money doesn't become a stigma. It becomes really what it is, which is a tool to get things done. Right, right. Yes. So growing a team requires investments, such as in fundraising, accounting, program staff. And this can be scary, especially when the funding is not necessarily guaranteed year over year. Liz, you had mentioned before that you're primarily foundation funded and those cycles, which we've definitely seen through the years, those cycles can only be two to three years. So Liz, what tools have you had at your disposal to help you make some of these financial decisions and maybe help you sleep a little bit better at night? Well, I will say two things. One is working with Brand K, like I know you guys are meticulous and that's like really Critical. Like, I know you're watching our finances, you know, it, very, very closely. So I have complete and utter confidence. You know, we get monthly financial reports, including cash flow. You know, to me, that in some regards, that's the most critical of the documents, like from a common sense point of view, in terms of, you know, it's, you don't have to know accountants speak to understand cash flow, <laughs> which is, which is important. Exactly. Right. So if everything shuts down tomorrow and I don't get another dollar for the remainder of the year, this is how many months of cash I have on hand today. This is what I have. This is what I anticipate. This is what I'd like to add. This is what my contingency would be if this doesn't come in. You know, when you could go out a few months, you can go out a year. It's very practical in the short run and mid run, but it's also a planning tool. That's it. So yeah. Liz, how was that helpful when the pandemic hit? Oh, well, you know, we were actually right before the pandemic, some of our big funders, it, life is funny sometimes, actually quite short um, um, on, on cash. And um, so we worked with... Um, uh, Susan um, from Brand K, 
and just played out different scenarios. Okay, what are our contingencies? And I was like, I need to keep this team. They're fabulous. I'll do anything to keep them. So we, we, we figured a few things out. And then, um, and then when the pandemic hit, our work around school meals pivoted and we do other work that I haven't talked a whole bunch about, but good food purchasing policy campaign. It's more around food systems and municipal procurement power. And um, funds started coming in because we were in an advocacy capacity and a coalition capacity dealing with the pandemic and what the city was doing, mobilizing its, its, um, its resources. So we ended up, we ended up stabilizing and doing fine and doing well. And um, also we're lucky to, to be building an individual donor base and capacity, which, which gives a different, is a different kind of work and gives a different kind of flexibility. And then um, we're able to increase that substantially with, with a, a, a large donor coming, coming on board. So we went from not dire crisis mode, but crunch mode, pretty bad crunch mode to uh, stability to actually being in a good place. And along, all along that we've been, you know, we, we talk monthly, we get reports, we, we do cash flow projections along with the other reports. And we were able to say, okay, here, we, what do we need to do to make sure we keep the team, pay the rent, do that. Okay. Now things are stable. Let's plan out a little bit more. And then when we got got a large um, donation from an individual donor, it's it's now we're in a growth mode. And how do we do that um, in ways that are um, sustainable and thoughtful and expands the team and the capacity in a way that that's that's uh, most useful? So that's a combination of things. But the, but the cash flow and financial piece of that is is key because we want to make sure we can we can build on that. You know, Liz, you mentioned that one of your top priority was making sure that you could keep your team. And honestly, I feel exactly the same way. It's all about the people. Marty, you also mentioned before that turnover is expensive. It's expensive and it also sucks the morale out of an organization. Can you expand on that thought? Because I think that's really relevant here. Absolutely. So turnover, basically, if you need a metric, Turnover is going to cost an organization 30 to 50% of that person's salary. That's how you quantify it. And that really doesn't take into account end to end, right? Because first you have to become disillusioned. Then you have to think, well, maybe I'll change jobs. And then you kind of get serious about it. So there could be a six month runway, right? Before this, before the meter starts running as it were, but then the organization has to go out, they have to hire, they have to onboard. You know, it, it's like, I, I call it um, a lot of times, it's like a political cycle, right? You get on, and especially if you're looking at development, you have a consultant at the moment, but I'll use development as an example because a lot of people are familiar with that. Typical development people last about 18 months. So what are we talking about in terms of actual work output, output and productivity? We're really talking about six months. You bring them on, you onboard them for six months, they work for six months, they start looking for a new job, right? So, you know, there, it's, it, it, it's a very interesting cycle. And 
if you can stem, any organization can sort of stem that turnover and stem that turnover cost. Um, you had mentioned the cash flows that you get every month. If you had to factor in another 30 to 50% in terms of expense or, or overt expense regarding turnover, you know, it changes your cash flow dramatically, which also means that when you go back to a foundation and let's say you want to try to make the case to convert to a multi-year grant, you know, they're going to feel much more positive if you're coming in with a really good balance sheet, right? It's a good way to think about funding diversification, to think about how you can leverage existing funders, but everybody wants to be the second funder. Nobody really wants to be the first. So you've got this great bench strength of, of funders, uh, but coming to them with a really positive cash flow over months and months, and that has been basically, for lack of a better word, has, has had huge oversight and accountability from an outside person on it, uh, has a lot of credibility, you know, when you're thinking about how to raise more money, expand your programs. So it's kind of a two-part answer, too. Exactly. That's great. And that's exactly the point. So now Liz has effectively built that foundation. She's built a strong pool of funders. So she has a big pool of people now that have given her money for the first time and she's just below the million dollar mark. So Marty, I guess I have two questions for you. What is the next level for Liz? I've been told the first is hitting a million dollars. The next big point is $5 million. But I would appreciate your thoughts here. And then the second question is, what does Liz do now? She has the foundation. So how does she take this thing to the next level? Well, the first thing is, yeah, a million dollars is is like a nice little watershed, right? Nice round number, lots of zeros. It's great. And, you know, you can use this from both your team's internal point of view and from a fundraising point of view, because it's partly both, to you're at the last $250,000, as it may be a little less, you know, depending on exactly where you are, but you're somewhere around that. So this is almost like the uh, public television fundraising kind of scenario where it's help us close this gap mm. because with a million dollars, we you can put us into play. Once we get to a million dollars, we're in play with so many other organizations, so many other conversations that we can have, right? So going back to, and this goes, you know, your board, your team, everyone, it's all about closing the gap. It's all about incrementalism. You know, if going to them saying right now, okay, we're almost at a million, but we're, we're heading for five. That is an enormous divide, right? Yeah. People yeah. are much better at making change on a small level that, as you know, because you do policy and advocacy, it's every small step every single day. This is really no different with the team. But in terms of keeping engagement up and morale up, having these small wins uh, is really critical, number one, to keep them motivated and to keep them really working hard and being highly, highly productive. Uh, And then I would say to Amy's second point of that, what's, what's really the next level? $5 $5 million is a great goal, but you know, really it's like 1 million to 2 million, one to two to 2.5, 2.5 to 3.5, right? There are lots and lots of steps in between. Um, but I would say to the extent that, 
you can convert some of these first time, you have a lot of first time donors, you know, some first time donors to repeat or multi-year donors uh, are really powerful. And this is really where you can get your team involved. You have those, the meetings where you have your grant writer there, you know, start to figure out what the scenarios are and start putting out some, some thought pieces on why from the team members, why this next level is really important and why the support is really important to, to make that next leap in the work that you want to do. Did I answer both of your questions, Amy? Because they were, they were two and they were a little different. Did I get that second one? <laughs> yes, you did. Thank you. And so Liz, so what are you looking to do now? I think there's a lot of opportunity here. Yeah. I mean, we're, one of the things that we've had limited capacity in is communications. You know, we do communications, but it's more ad hoc and less strategic. And so we need to build that out, especially where, you know, as an advocacy organization, we're in a, an interesting moment as part of the city's political world changes over, both in terms of the mayor and I think it's three quarters, if not more, of the city council. So that, you know, relationships and communications and that kind of thing is pretty important. We're a small team, though, so we can't hire a full-time communications person. So we need to figure out what we bring in-house and what we do with a consultant. And we want to be really deliberate about who joins the team, not to not to rush to, to add people, but be make sure we have the right match. Because as Marty said, you bring someone on, they turn over, you've just lost capacity and time and, and all that kind of stuff. So Honestly, this is where like knowing where staffing investments make sense and knowing and, and for the size of the organization and where consulting investments make sense because you can get highly skilled people and pay them a good rate as a consultant, sometimes higher, much more highly skilled people than you could afford on salary. As we grow, we'll figure, we'll figure it out as it makes sense. And Liz, as a final wrap-up question, what is one piece of advice that you would give to a nonprofit executive director of a startup in exactly the same spot that you were eight years ago? So the advice that I would give is find a consultant or consultant firm to help you set up financial structures from the baseline. Don't wait more than a week. (laughs) It's important to get things in place so that as you're building, you know what you're doing. You're doing it with someone who knows what you don't know. Like it's important. The key thing of running an organization is to get people on board that know things you don't know um, that can add to what, what you have. So you do that. You learn and build together. You're going to get financial reports, all the accounting forms. You, you need to learn about that and take time to learn and ask a ton of questions Ask them again and again if you need to, and make sure you get cash flow reports because that will be something you and your board will be able to understand quickly and immediately, and you'll understand the implications as you move forward and you build. Can I add something to that? As you were talking, Liz, I was thinking about what Amy does and what she provides and your organization you know, as an aggregate and you're gonna be scaling and bringing people on and all of that. And what occurred to me was that the ability at the outset of your organization to have an incredibly transparent financial picture that was 
clear. It, it, you know, it, it has a, a long team of history behind it. It hasn't been turned over from one person to another. You've got so much clarity and transparency in the financial world that you have that, you know, I, for most people who are looking to come on to work with an organization, whether it's board work or whether it's as staff, the finances is the first thing they look at. It says a lot about your culture, about this transparency that you have and that you're putting forth each and every month with cash flow analysis and with forecasting and long-term planning that you're, you're not afraid to do the hard work in the financial part, you know, as you're doing the hard work in the organizational and the advocacy and the policy part. So I think from a hiring, you know, going back to teams and hiring, from a hiring standpoint, and I'm sure as you will be growing your board as well, um, it's a really good story, you know, to have this kind of continuity in your financial picture and transparency in the financial picture. That's interesting. Marty, same question back to you. As an executive director of a small startup nonprofit organization, what would you recommend? What would be one piece of advice? I would say the number one priority, and it builds off of what Liz said, don't be a band of one. I've seen a lot of, of EDs of nonprofits, whether they're founders, whether they're the first ED, they try to do everything. And it's just not possible. And so understanding, being very reflective and understanding where your gaps are, if they're in the financial area, if they're in the operations area, maybe you didn't come from programs, but maybe you came, maybe you came from business school, you know, who knows, but there, there are going to be gaps and to be very aware of what those gaps are and don't be afraid to ask for help. I've also seen a lot of new EDs feel like, you know, I can put my head down, I can muscle through it, and I, I can do it. I can do it. Well, maybe you can, but I think your life will be much richer and happier if you ask for help because that's what your board is there for. That's what the resources are there for. And hiring, to Liz's point, experts in the fields in which you know you, at that point, can't afford a full-time person. It doesn't make good financial sense but you get the infrastructure in place at the outset. So you're not going back to correct mistakes. You just continue to move forward. Liz Ackles, Marty Fisher, thank you so much to both of you for joining us today. Thank you, Amy. Nice meeting you, Liz. Thank you for listening to The Balance. I'm your host, Amy Carson. You can learn more about our company, Brand K Partners, and what we do at brandkpartners.com. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, and this episode was produced by David Hoffman and Alex Brower. If you like the show, never miss an episode by subscribing on all your favorite podcast apps. And please leave a rating and a review. See you next week.